If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, open them up to Mark chapter 8. If you have one of our Bibles from the welcome table, it's on page 895. We're going to look at the end of chapter 8 today. We're going to start in verse 22 and finish our way through the chapter. Um, this is the pivot point. This is the, this is the, 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 the sort of the peak of, of, of Mark's gospel that separates the first half of the gospel from the second half of his gospel. These first eight chapters um, are, are going to close with this, this confession of Peter on who is Jesus Christ. And this is answering this prevailing question over the whole first half of the gospel. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And, and uh, to answer that question about his identity. And then Jesus is going to take that confession and he's going to explain, uh, he, he's going to tell Peter, yeah, you're right, I am the Messiah. But then he's going to explain to Peter what that means. And it's not going to be what Peter thinks it means. It's not going to be what the disciples think, is, think it means. But that's the transition point for us in the gospel. We're going to see less and less miracles. We're going to see more and more of Jesus uh, spending this intentional time with his disciples, the 12 especially, and, and helping them see what it means to be who he is, why he has come. So the first half of the gospel, who is Jesus? The second half of the gospel, what is his mission? What is he doing? How is he going to inaugurate the kingdom? And it's not how they think he's going to do it. And today we're going to get a glimpse of that. Um, and so um, we could summarize it this way. In the first half of Mark's gospel, we see Jesus comforting the afflicted. Over and over and over again, right? He heals the sick. He, he um, gives sight to the blind. He, he gives hearing to the deaf. He restores outcasts. He feeds thousands. He casts out demons. He even raises a girl from the dead, right? He's comforting the afflicted. The second half of Mark's gospel, Jesus afflicts the comfortable. That's not as fun for us. But it's gonna challenge us. It's, it's gonna strip away our our preconceived ideas of who Christ is and is actually going to help us see who we are in him uh, even better than we understand that now. And he's going to do that by showing us that the kingdom of God actually comes through his own affliction and death and resurrection. That's where the comfort comes back. But this, this this message of, of what he's coming to do, this has profound implications on what it means for us to be his disciples. In today's passage, Jesus is going to clearly state that he has come to die and that if we're going to follow him, anyone who wants to follow him, guess what? You have to die too. Now, it's a bold statement that's either going to comfort you or it's going to afflict you depending on your perception of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. But it's a statement that none of us in here can ignore if we truly want to call ourselves Christians. Because we're opening God's word together and I've been given the task to handle it and to teach it, I want to pray for God's help. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you are here with us. We thank you that... Um, your word and your spirit work together as witnesses, testifying to the person and work of Jesus. And so we confess this morning that uh, though we may claim Christ as the Christ, as the Messiah, as our Savior, that we have a long way to go in fully grasping what that means. And so we ask for your help this morning as we hear your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Have it your way. 
because you're worth it. Just do it. Think different. Open happiness. Do you recognize these phrases? They're slogans from famous marketing brands. On the the surface, right, they sound like these motivational phrases that encourage you. They play on your sense of self-worth and and your emotions, and, and they make it sound like they're interested in you. We're all about you, right? But what they're doing underneath is they're just trying to get you to buy their product, right? They're selling a label, ultimately, but they know how to do that. They, they tug on the strings of our heart. They, they tug on, on, on our, our sense and our, of our own value and, and our own self-worth. Here's another one. Anyone who wants to follow me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Recognize that one? That's more than a slogan. It's a requirement. It's not something that we get to decide yes or no to if we want to follow Jesus. It's something that we have to agree to if we call ourselves Christians. It's given to us by the one, not not who's selling us something, but by the one who's purchased us by his blood, with his own blood, right? That we sang about this morning. Jesus Christ. Those those advertising slogans, though, if, if we're honest, they sound... They sound better, don't they? Right? I want to open happiness. We like options. We like easy. We like being in control. Because of that, we tend to shape our view of Jesus by how we want to follow him. But that puts us in the center instead of him, and it reverses the order of things. We don't, we don't shape our view of Jesus by how we want to follow him. We follow Jesus because of who he is. He shapes us. This is what we need to learn this morning. So if we want to truly follow Jesus, then we need to truly see Jesus for who he really is. It starts with gazing upon him. It starts with looking at him and seeing who Christ is. And we need him to show us because As we saw last week, we're full of spiritual blindness, right? We have blind spots. And even when we do see some things, like we're going to see today, we're not going to see clearly right away. It's going to take time. And so we need Jesus to continue to show us. So the the passage that we're looking at this morning is similar in in a sense of last week, how we had like a setup story. And then Mark uses that to really teach us the lesson. Same thing here. We're going to see the healing of a blind man. And then it's going to show us that um, it, it, was a, it was a miracle that Jesus actually did. But Mark orders things. If you think like a deck of cards, like he has all these stories from, from Peter uh, about Jesus' life. And Mark's not, cons- not really um, concerned with chronological events. Some of these things are happening in chronological order in the gospel. But it's like this deck of cards where, where Peter's just giving him all these things. And, and he's arranging them in, uh, in a way that uh, they're going to... They're gonna, to use a poker term, I guess, um, give you a good hand. He wants you to see something here, right? And so we're going to take this, this story from the blind man, and we're going to see this parallel between the blind man's physical blindness and the disciple's spiritual blindness, and it's going to cause us to look at our own blindness. Again, two weeks in a row, we get to look at our blindness. Why? Because blind people spiritually 
we don't see our own blindness, and we need to be reminded of it over and over and over. So let's look at this story. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him, and they begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and he said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, Don't even go into the village. Excuse me. Now this story is similar in account to the end of chapter 7 when Jesus heals uh, the deaf man who can't speak. And if we look between that story and between this story, in between there is what we talked about last week where Jesus is rebuking the disciples in the boat because they don't understand about the bread, right? What's one of the questions that he asks them? He says, do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? Now remember, Mark is arranging these stories so that we as the readers and and his first century Roman Christian readers would would see this playing out here and go, Jesus healed a, 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 a deaf man, Jesus healed a blind man, and in between he's asking his disciples, are you deaf and blind? He's tying these, two, these things together. They're meant to help the disciples understand that spiritual healing, spiritual sight, and spiritual hearing only come through Christ. And in both of those cases, he uses his spit and he lays his hands on these, on these men to heal them. And, and, and uh, that could serve as a reminder to us that we need Jesus' words and his deeds in order to, uh, to receive hearing and sight, in order to understand, to see and hear The healing of this blind man is the only miracle in all four of the Gospels that happens in stages. Now, this isn't because Jesus can't heal him right away in one fell swoop. Remember, just before this, he uh, cast out a demon from the Syrophoenician woman's daughter without even going to her house. He also raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He's capable of healing this man's blindness like that. He doesn't even have to be there if he doesn't want to be. And so his healing of this man in two stages, it's on purpose. And and in verse 23, he asks the man, he says, do you see anything? It's not like Jesus is is spitting in his eyes and touching his hands and he's like, oh, did that work? He's asking this man, he's, he's eliciting something. He wants him to say what he's going to say. And the man, or he's linking this man's physical sight with the lack of spiritual sight to the disciples, remember what he asked them at least twice in the boat in that barrage of questions last week. Do you see anything? Don't you understand, he says. And so this is drawing their memory back to that, hopefully. It's, it's meant to draw ours back to that, at least. And so we need to understand, and, and the disciples need to understand, that though they have seen Jesus, they don't fully and clearly see him. Just like this man, this blind man, sees but he, people, but they look like trees walking around, right? This is stage one of his healing. It happens in verse 21. He sees, but not clearly. It says, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Anybody wear um, glasses and, or, or contacts in here? If you take them off, will you run into things and not recognize people? In this room, anyone? You, if you, if you're the, if you have corrected vision, you know what it's like to to not have your corrected vision, right? If you squint your eyes really tight like this, 
Nobody's doing it. Well, I see you are. Yeah. Okay? If you squint your eyes tight like this, you can kind of get a vision of what this guy is seeing. I see people, but, but they, they don't look like people. They look like trees walking around. Stage two of the healing happens in the next verse. After Jesus touches the man the second time, says the man looked intently. The sense here is that, that he stared with his eyes wide open. And he sees clearly. His sight is restored. He sees everything clearly. I, I, I see the people. I understand. They're, they're people now. After Jesus heals the blind man, he sends him home, and then he tells him, to go, he tells him not to go back into the village. So the man doesn't live in the village. Apparently they brought him from there. But either way, Jesus doesn't want him to go back because he doesn't want to make this a big crowd thing again right? Jesus' concern here is not to go and heal and have compassion on another large group of people. His concern is to have compassion on his 12 followers, the the 12, the disciples. He wants to focus in on them and correct their vision, their focus. So let's look at stage one of their sight in seeing the Messiah. Verse 27 Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. Now, Caesarea Philippi, it's about 25 miles north of Bethsaida. It's a hard word to say. Um, Bethsaida is on the kind of northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's, it would be right on the eastern side of the Jordan River where it comes down and meets the sea. And so straight up north, 25 miles or so, is this region of Caesarea Philippi and all the surrounding villages. It's predominantly a non-Jewish region. It was the central place of worship for the Canaanite god Baal, the Greek god Pan, and actually the worship of Caesar himself. So it's this pagan area. And it's on the way to this, this pagan place where Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? This is where we're going to have this conversation about the identity of Christ. And Mark uses this phrase in verse 27 that shows up nine different times between chapters 8 and 12. And that is this phrase, on the way. In our translation, it it says, on the road. And it's going to show up in, in various ways in our English translations, but that underlying phrase that Mark uses is, is on the way. To understand the significance of this, we we need to go back to chapter 1 real quick. Mark opens the gospel, right, by saying this is the good news of Jesus Christ, or the Christ, the Son of God. And then he goes in to quote Isaiah and Malachi, two Old Testament prophets, to point to John the Baptist as this messenger who has come to prepare the way for the Lord. So what he says in, in uh, chapter 1, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Now Mark repeats this phrase over and over for the next four chapters to show that the way of the Lord and, and, and over this, the second half of his gospel, it's going to narrow in on this trip to Jerusalem. The way of the Lord is this trip to Jerusalem to inaugurate, to establish the kingdom of God. Now the disciples as they go toward Jerusalem are going to think that Jesus is going to establish the earthly kingdom, the political rule, liberate them from Rome. What they don't realize is that the throne that he's going to is a cross. 
And the way to the kingdom is marked by suffering and death. And so on the way to Caesarea Philippi, he starts stage one of their spiritual healing, of their sight, by asking them this question in verse 27. Who do people say I am? What have you heard? There have been several statements about Jesus' identity up to this point in Mark's gospel. His family said that he was out of his mind. People in his hometown, they couldn't see him as anything other than the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas. These are his sisters here with us. And Simon, they said. Religious leaders called him a blasphemer. They said he was demon-possessed. The crowd said he teaches with more authority than the scribes and does everything well. King Herod thought he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others thought he was Elijah or one of the prophets from the Old Testament. His own disciples asked back in chapter 4 after he calmed the the wind and the waves. Remember that? Who then is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They've been asking that question since chapter 4. They haven't got their answer yet. They get it today. Mark calls Jesus the Christ the Son of God at the beginning of his gospel. God the Father calls Jesus his beloved Son in whom he's well pleased. Here's the kicker. Demons call him the Holy One of God, the Son of God, and the Son of the Most High God. Up to this point in the gospel of Mark. Mark, as the narrator, God is the Father, and the demons are the only ones who have accurately identified who Jesus is. No human has accurately called Jesus. Jesus, who he is correctly. John the Baptist came the closest when he said, one who is more powerful than I will come after me. Halfway through the gospel, not one person has said who Christ is until now. Verse 28, the 12 answered Jesus' question, who do the people say I am? They recap the three main conceptions. We've heard these a couple chapters ago of the people. They think he's either John the Baptist. They think he's Elijah, one of the prophets of the Old Testament, or just another general prophet of the Old Testament. All of these are honorable guesses. They reveal Jesus' popularity among the people, but they're all wrong. They're all wrong. Jesus isn't concerned, though, really with what the others think. He's using this question as a setup for the disciples because then he turns to them in verse 29. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Here it is. This is the climactic moment. This is, this is like uh, the, the denouement, right? Remember that word from... English literature, whatever, storytelling, I don't remember. It's French for like high point, okay? I think it's French. I've spent way too long on that word. Everything in the first half of Mark's gospel has been leading up to these four words from Peter. You are the Messiah. Now Mark actually doesn't elaborate on this conversation but but Matthew in his gospel does Jesus says blessed are you Simon son of Jonah for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood in in other words you didn't come up with this on your own my father in heaven revealed this to you this is spiritual sight Peter this is spiritual sight disciples Peter's confession is is representative of the collective there 
Jesus opened their spiritual eyes to see who he is. When he asks them, who do you say I am? He's giving them the answer. And even though now they see that he's the Messiah, they don't fully grasp what they mean. They've gotten stage one of their spiritual eyesight. They have their own ideals, but their ideas are are wrong about what it means to be the Messiah. They think Jesus is going to set up this earthly kingdom. They think he's going to come and liberate them from the Roman government. But that's not what the Messiah has come to do. And so Jesus, what does he do? Don't tell anybody. We're not done yet. We're not done yet. You can't, you can't, can't share this. Look at verse 31. It says, Then he began to teach them what it was, or that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. What? You're the Messiah. We picked the right guy. I'm going to die. It says he began to teach them. This is the first of three times over the next two chapters we're going to see Jesus give a summary like this and follow it up immediately with a teaching to the disciples on what it means to be a disciple of Christ, what it means to follow him. It's part of that second stage of giving them spiritual sight, but they won't see clearly still until after the resurrection, until after the spirit is given to them. In the Old Testament, Daniel was a Jewish exile living in Babylon, and he had this vision, this dream about a divine being who looked like a a human and came down from heaven to establish an everlasting kingdom. Listen to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. It says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Peter says, you're the Messiah. Jesus responds with, the Son of Man will be. He calls himself the Son of Man here with his disciples. In the Old Testament, the Son of Man, the Messiah, and the suffering servant in Isaiah None of those are, are uh, assumed to be the same person. But here Jesus is bringing them all together in himself. They all find their fulfillment in what Jesus says about who he is. But what he says here sounds nothing like Daniel's dream, right? Sounds nothing like what Daniel says. And Peter picks up on this. You're the Messiah. The son of man's going to be killed. Here's what Peter says, verse 32. He spoke openly about it. This is talking about Jesus. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but about human concerns. Mark says Jesus spoke openly about this in verse 32. The sense there is that he boldly declared the word. What has been the word up until this point? chapter 4, he talks about it. It's the mystery of the kingdom. That's why he uses parables, right? I'm inviting you in, giving you the word, the mystery of the kingdom, keeping others out so that they will be ever seeing and not believing, ever hearing and not perceiving. 
Now for the first time, the message, the word, the secret of the kingdom, it's revealed that specifically and clearly, openly to them that Jesus is going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to raise again. But the, the, the disciples, they refuse to believe it. Peter, who just correctly identified Jesus as the Messiah, as the king of God's everlasting kingdom, takes the king aside and rebukes him, it says. That's pretty bold, right? That word rebuke is, is the same word that Mark uses to talk about Jesus casting out demons. This is no like, are you sure kind of thing. This is like, that's ridiculous. Peter says, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, yeah, I am. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. Peter says, wait, that is not right. You are wrong. That is incorrect. That's never going to happen to you. One commentator put it this way. Like Satan at the temptation in the wilderness, Peter offers Jesus the crown without the cross. He thinks he has a better plan than God does. Now we know why Jesus has been so secretive. I mean, let's, let's think about this for a minute. The 12 men that have been closest to him this whole time finally get revealed the truth about who he is, and they disagree with him. They want to make him an earthly king. What do you think the crowds are going to do if they understand that? They know that he's the Messiah. Verse 33, Jesus turns his back on Peter in a harsh but necessary rebuke. And he turns and he looks at the disciples so that they know that the rebuke is for them too because they share in Peter's opinion. Peter's become the mouthpiece of Satan here. We can't overlook this. This is, this is a serious thing that's going on. The, the, mouth, the same mouth that just confessed Jesus to be the Messiah, essentially out of that same mouth comes the lie of the devil. Did you really say? Did God really say? That's not what's going on. That's not right. There's another way. He's attempting to steer Jesus away from what he's come to do, but it's Jesus who does the course correcting here. Peter, you're not thinking about God's concerns. You're thinking about man's concerns. When we put human concerns above God's concerns, we're more in agreement with Satan than we are with Christ. That's a sobering thought. Have you ever told God that he's wrong about something? Look at verse 34. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus is no longer just with the 12. Suddenly there's crowds involved again. The crowd is there because what Jesus has to say doesn't just apply to these 12 men. It applies to everyone who wants to call themselves a follower of Jesus. Anyone who takes the name disciple of Christ needs to understand what he's about to say here. And he gives them the summary of what it means to be a disciple of his. First, deny yourself. Behave in a completely selfless manner. Reject autonomy. Understand that you do not have the final word in your life. You are not your own authority. As Americans, we flinch at that, don't we? Because that's exactly the opposite of what our culture tells us. Our culture leads us toward this sense of individualism, towards this idolatry of self. 
Nobody can tell me that I'm wrong or right. I get to determine that. Jesus says, take up your cross. Be prepared to endure, suf- to endure suffering even to the point of death for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. The deeper we go in rejecting the cultural norms and holding on to God and his word, the more at risk we are of experiencing rejection, hostility, persecution, and even death. And then Jesus says, follow me. Believe me. Obey me. Follow my words. Walk in my ways. Speak and do what I speak and do. We can't watch Jesus go to the cross. We have to follow him to it. For us, the cross is often a symbol on a necklace that we wear. It's often a figure of speech that we use when we talk about inconveniences or difficulties that we face. It's our cross to bear, right? Daylight savings is one of those. A lot of times we say it in a joking way like that, right? Because it messes with our comfort. But for Mark's first century readers in Rome under the rule of Nero, this is going to become a reality for them. Just a few short years after they get this gospel in their hands and they read it, Nero is going to burn Christians alive as he executes them on the cross. It's a reality for them. Blames them for setting Rome on fire. Are you willing to face that kind of persecution? Or do you say, hold on, wait a minute, that's not, how that, that, that's not how this works. That's not how that, that's going to happen. That's never going to happen to us. We're Americans, right? We have religious freedoms. We have rights. We do have rights. I praise God for the rights that we've been given. I'm thankful for that. But we need to understand this point right here. It's not our rights as Americans that give us rights to the kingdom of God. It's our union with Christ. And our union with Christ means that we share not only in his resurrection, but also in his sufferings. Here's a good litmus test for you and for me. If you lost all the religious freedoms that our country currently gives you, do you still have freedom in Christ? Or does that go away too? See, suffering has a way of exposing where we've grown comfortable with the label of Christianity, but where we fail to actually live as Christians. To show us where our heart is pulled toward and, and, and where we hesitate to follow Jesus. It, it helps us see where we're thinking about human concerns and not God's concerns. Is there anything that you're not willing to give up for the sake of Christ and his gospel? Anything you're not willing to endure in order to make him known and to bring him glory. Do you understand that the purpose of your life as a follower of Jesus is not to live the American dream? It's to make Christ known to a dying world. And it starts in this community, in this school. Jesus gives four reasons why everyone who follows him or wants to follow him must deny. He said, told Peter and the disciples, it's necessary for the Son of Man to endure these things. Here it is. It's necessary for you to do these things too. And this is why. First reason is in verse 35. 
For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. See, if you try to preserve your earthly life above everything else, if you make that the ultimate goal, you'll lose your eternal life, Jesus is saying. He's comparing the two things, and and the eternal life is far more valuable. If you consider your life more valuable than Christ's life and the message of the gospel, you'll lose not only your earthly life, guess what, we all lose that at the end, but you'll lose Christ and you will lose eternal life that is promised in the gospel. But Jesus promises to eternally preserve the soul of anyone who surrenders his or her life now for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Therefore, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Next two reasons are in the next two verses. Verse 36. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? Again, there's a comparison here. Jesus is comparing the value of a human soul to the entire wealth of the world. He's, he's exposing the lie of Satan in the temptation in the wilderness and in Peter's confession or, or rejection, I should say, that says that the ultimate thing to gain is what the world has to offer, that we rule over everyone else and we have the most power and the most wealth and everything that our hearts desire. Not only is there no benefit and no profit in gaining the whole world, but in doing so, it comes at the ultimate cost, your very life, your soul. Because the payment for gaining the world is your soul. The soul cannot be exchanged for anything of equal value because there is nothing of equal value. Jesus is making it clear that the ultimate thing that we can gain is not the world, the world that will pass away. The ultimate thing we can gain is Christ who is the same yesterday and today and forever. The one who rules and reigns right now and will do so for all eternity. Therefore, Because this one who rules and reigns has purchased you with his own blood. That he's paid the great cost. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow him. Final reasons in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. To be ashamed of Christ in the gospel is to commit spiritual adultery and sin against Jesus. This isn't talking about moments of denial and embarrassment when you're afraid to share the gospel and you, you just you don't muster up enough courage or guts or whatever you want to call it to, to open your mouth and, and you, uh, you miss the opportunity to share the gospel with someone. He's not talking about that right here. That's grievous. Don't get me wrong. But that's not what he's talking about. Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. He's going to be embarrassed. But Christ is going to hold him. Christ is going to help him persevere. What Jesus is talking about here is anyone who has a disposition toward him of shame and embarrassment, like the elders, the chief priests the scribes who will reject and kill him, this wicked and sinful, adulterous generation. 
If you reject Christ that way in this life, then he will reject you when he returns, riding on the clouds. Here's where Daniel's dream comes in. In all his glory with the angels to judge the living and the dead. You reject him here, he'll reject you there. Therefore, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Do you look at the cross of Jesus and see foolishness? Do you look at the cross of Jesus and see shame? Or do you look at the cross of Jesus and see freedom, forgiveness, hope, love? If you want to follow Jesus, it's an all or nothing deal. This is what Christ is calling us to. There's no in-between. You don't get to set the parameters of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus gets to set those parameters. Now that sounds harsh and unfair unless we consider who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ, the anointed one, God's beloved son. He's the king of God's everlasting kingdom, the one who was, who is, and is to come. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the fullness of God in bodily form. And in that body, he suffered at the hands of men. He died our death on the cross, and then he triumphed three days later when he rose from the grave. This is the one who calls you to follow him. Is there anyone else that can do that that's worthy of that? He denied himself. He took up his cross and he died on it in order to show us the way to be reconciled to God and welcomed into his kingdom. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave to show that he is truly the everlasting king. That he is the ruler and the, and the one who reigns forever and that the payment of his own blood was sufficient to purchase the freedom and forgiveness that we need Everyone who, de- who denies themselves takes up their cross and follows him through repentance and faith. It was necessary for the king to establish the kingdom through suffering and death because it was the only way to rescue us from our sin and reconcile us to God. But it's because he's rescued us from our sin and reconciled us to God that we can trust him when he says... If they hated me, they'll hate you. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I've overcome the world. So when he calls us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him, we can do that because we know that any suffering that he allows in our lives is for our good, not our punishment. It's for his glory. It's for Jesus Christ and the sake of the gospel so that others can know him and be saved. This morning, we've, we've followed Jesus and the disciples on the way. We've, we've heard them say who others think he is. We've heard them say who they think he is. But in order for us to truly follow Christ, every one of us has to deal with this question and answer it. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Does your answer match his? If so, are you heeding his call to deny yourself, to take up your cross 
and to follow him? Are you trying to convince yourself and Jesus that there is another way? If your answer doesn't match his, is is it possible that you're not seeing him clearly? Maybe you're aware, maybe you have this understanding, you know that he's the Christ, the Messiah, he's Jesus, the Son of God. He died on the cross for sins. But right now the things of this world are more appealing to you than he is. What can you give in exchange for your soul? Nothing. See that Christ has given himself to redeem you. Turn from your sins. Trust in him. Keep repenting. Keep believing. Keep denying yourself. Keep taking up your cross. Keep following him. You're not doing it to earn what he's freely given you. You're doing it to follow the one who gave everything for you. What we believe about Jesus inevitably shapes how we follow him or whether or not we follow him at, at all. But to follow necessarily means that someone else is leading, correct? Let that be the Messiah. Let that be the Christ, the king of God's everlasting kingdom. He's the only one worth following, but we have to follow him on his terms, the way he says, not our own. We must be shaped into Christ's image and resist shaping Christ into ours. That means that we must be willing to suffer because he suffered. But listen, it also means that we will get to conquer because he conquered. Paul says the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. That's true. So, while we have the freedoms that we have, let's use them and praise God for them. But if they go away, we need to see that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We need to continue to proclaim him as the Messiah. We need to understand that what we know about him now is not the full picture, and it's going to take the rest of our lives as followers of Jesus to understand. Right now we see dimly as in a mirror, Paul says. One day we will be seen or see in full, face to face. We'll be known, or we'll, we will know as we are fully known. Our sight will be restored. So let's fix our eyes on what's to come, on who is to come. We have a king that's going to return. And while we wait for that day, that glorious day, let's deny ourselves. Let's take up our cross and let's follow him together on his terms because they're good terms. They're the best terms. Amen? Lord, we're grateful for who you are. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that Though you call us to difficult things, you don't call us to anything that you yourself haven't endured on our behalf. And you don't call us to anything that you yourself don't endure with us through your spirit and guide us through it by your word and encourage us in the midst of it with your church and keep us fixed on our Heavenly Father who gave His only Son 
those who believe in him can be given the right to be called children of God. Open our eyes. Let us see these things more and more clearly with each passing day. And let our awe of you, let our love for you deepen more and more. And out of that love, God, would you help us to sacrifice and surrender more and more, counting everything as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. We need your help. So help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.